it's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented, as always, by my good friends at Mercury Mile. Today was a very hot and humid day. Not too hot, I shouldn't say that. It was very humid. The dew point was high this morning here in Rhode Island, and I was wearing a new shirt that I got recently uh, from Mercury Miles, a New Balance shirt, and boy, did this thing hold up. I was a sweaty mess. I hit eight miles uh, with three one-mile repeats in the middle, and this shirt was great. It did an excellent job. I was so glad I was wearing it, and I would not have purchased this on my own. This shirt has kind of a purplish um, hue to it. I would have passed on it in a store, but because it was sent to my house, and I was able to kind of tell, just I guess look at it in a little bit of a different light. And I kept it, and boy, am I glad that I did. And this is what Mercury Mile is all about. You don't leave your home. They send you great stuff right to your house. You keep what you love. You send back what you don't. And if you use code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 at checkout, then you'll save $10. So go to mercurymile.com today. So today's episode is with Molly Bookmeyer. This woman, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, as you'll hear, I am not going to give up uh, what happens in this episode because it is just a fascinating one. And we touch on a lot of topics that, um, shoot, man. This woman has gone through a lot and has bounced back to now just be absolutely killing it with, uh, as well as she is doing as a runner. Man, the horizon, it just, it just keeps extending. And, uh, you know, who knows what's to come for Molly? Uh, big things, I think. That's for sure. Uh, but my goodness, has she been able to put together, uh, quite a string of races over the past two years, despite immense difficulties, uh, for her and her family. And you are not going to want to miss this one. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm sure you'll love my conversation with Molly Bookmeyer. Hello, Molly, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I couldn't wait to talk to you, Molly. What a 2019 you are having. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, time has just gone by so fast, and I've had a great spring racing season so far, so I'm very happy with it. Yeah, no kidding, right? I mean, you, you, you things are going really well. You got... First of all, you got your OTQ in the marathon at Houston, which is awesome. You got a third at the national championship, 25K, uh, third behind Emma Bates and Sarah Hall with a time of 127. First of all, off the top of your head, did you know what 25K was? How many times have you run a 25K race? That was my very first time running a 25K race. I honestly, so I didn't even know that a 25K race was like a thing until we were kind of mapping out what races I wanted to run in the spring. And um, I knew, like kind of going into the spring season, I knew that after I got my OTQ, I really wanted to focus on running a half marathon fast. And I also wanted to run like a U.S. championship race just because I never had run in a U.S. championship race before. And so um, it worked out well because there was the U.S. half marathon championship in Pittsburgh, but it was right around the same time that um, Columbus has our local Cap City Half Marathon. And so I'm obviously, you know, from Columbus and very involved in the running community here. So I wanted to run my local race. And so it just kind of ended up working out perfectly with my schedule to run that half marathon and then run this 25K like two weeks later. And that was up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, right? Correct. It was. Which is, I mean, obviously it's not in the same state, but at least it's in the same region of the country for you. Yeah, it's in easy. In terms of it's, trying to get there. Yeah, it's drivable. Super easy. Oh, yeah. That's great. And then Cap City is a race that you've done a whole bunch. Yeah, I've done it. Um, I did it last year. So I did it this year. I did it last year. Um, and did it a few years ago when I um, was just kind of coming off some sickness and stuff. So, you know, I love racing at home. It's fun. I know a lot of people in the community and a lot of people who are running the races. So I think whenever I get the chance to run at home, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine. And then for, for people choosing to do the 25k distance, the the 25k national championship, it's so interesting, right? Because it's like that, that 
you really have that decision where running in the national championships is obviously appealing, right? Especially for, for someone who knows that they're going to be, if they're on a good, you know, having a good day and things are going well, that you're going to be competing right at the mm-hmm. front, which is really fun and exciting. But the, he said, even at your level, I would assume for, you know, being able to look at a half marathon and say, okay, I used to be here and now I can be here and really kind of compare yourself and see any gains that you've made. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's always, it's always fun to try to race and to run a PR. And so I definitely, I, I knew I was faster than I was in the fall. And so I definitely wanted to give a shot to just get a faster time. Um, but then on the flip side, you know, I also wanted to run a race where I was like racing for a place and racing people instead of just racing the clock. Um, so I kind of won on both ends and got to do be- uh, the best of both worlds this time, which was really fun and uh, special for me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just talk about the 25K for a second. So you, you came in third in that race, which is a huge, a huge deal. Going into the race, how was your, obviously you, you, this and the half marathon were really, as you said, just two weeks apart. So obviously you were really fit, but how were you feeling in terms of race strategy and how you were comparing yourself to the field, considering that, as you just said, that you were racing for place, not for time? Yeah, so um Kind of the my my strategy going into the 25k. I didn't. I honestly didn't even think about the 25k until after my half marathon. And after I finished my half marathon, um, I like knew in that race that I was like tired by the end, but I never felt like I was like completely exhausted. And I kind of told my coach that too. Like, I don't. I I wouldn't say that I could have gone like a lot faster. I just knew that I didn't feel like I gave it my all. So kind of going then into the 25k, the goal was, hey, could I could I hold this pace for two more miles and um and just gut it out? And you know, the worst thing that would happen is that I would just completely fall apart. But you know, nobody know, knew who I was going to this race, or I don't think anybody knew who I was going into this race. So I don't, you know, that wouldn't be a loss for me. And if I was able to stick it out, then um, it would have, you know, worked out well in my favor. So that was just kind of the, the goal. And then, um, yeah, I don't, I guess I didn't really know. I knew one other girl who was going to run it because we connected, um, in CIM. So I ran the CIM marathon, which I ended up having to drop out, out of the race. But anyways, we like kind of connected on, um, after that race through social media, I like, I met a lot of great girls through social media in, in these races that I've done. And so I knew she was running it, um, and they sent out like a list of some of the people that were running it. So of course, like, I'm not gonna lie, I looked to see who else was running the race. Um, of course. But I didn't know, honestly, until I think it was like the night before or the morning of the race that Emma Bates and Sarah Hall were running it. So they must have just been late ads to the race. Got it. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that you weren't sure if anyone even knew who you were. Now, is that something that gets you excited? you know, kind of like underdog mentality, I'm going to show them? Or is that kind of like an intimidating feeling? Um, I mean, I guess I don't really think too much of it. Um, I guess it's kind of cool, like underdog, you know, I just, I just kind of like to go out and like do my own thing. Um, but, you know, there's no pressure on me, I feel like. I think, you know, once people start to know who you are, um, who, we all put pressure on ourselves to perform. Um, but I think there's that added value of like when – other people, you know, put more, could sometimes it seem that other people are putting more pressure on you. Um, so sometimes it's just nice to swing in under the covers where, you know, the only person putting pressure is yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, so you'd run a 244 at Houston to get your Olympic trials qualifying time, but your half marathon PR now is 113. Yeah. So when you think about what you're capable of doing. And obviously you know, Atlanta is you know nine months away, but there's a lot of time between now and then. When you think about what you're capable of doing at the marathon distance, what is the kind of like range of times that you think at the high end that you think you can get to? Yeah. So I, um, my goal is to run low two thirties in the marathon. I I'm going to try to do a marathon this fall before Atlanta. Um, I still feel like I'm kind of figuring out the whole marathon piece of it. I So I got my OTQ in Houston, but I actually ran um, CIM in December. Like that was my goal race. And I ended up having to drop out of that race because um, I got like really bad stomach issues. And I literally wasn't going to like poop my pants. I didn't want to poop my pants during the race. And so I decided to drop out around mile 
I think around like mile 20, I think I slowed down a lot around like mile 17. And then I ended up totally just dropping out at mile 20. So that was like December 3rd. And I only had about, I think it was like six weeks until I ran Houston. So really Houston, my only goal was to just get my OTQ time and just kind of like get myself back together and get that, that 245, that sub 245. So I think I still have a lot of room to improve um, in the marathon, just a lot of it comes from just uh, believing that I can run that fast or, you know, compete and that I am a good runner. So I think now that I'm starting to see some of my hard work pay off in the shorter distances, uh, I think that's going to help me in the marathon. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in, in running 17 hard miles at CIM before kind of, like, as, you, as you mentioned, kind of like bring it down for a few miles before leaving the race at mile 20. Did you feel fresh going into Houston or did you feel like the, the kind of like the the altered marathon cycle kind of messed with you because obviously you'd gone through a taper and then CIM kind of turned into like just a really good long run. Yeah. Yeah. So um I had a lot of stuff going on around that time. So I um so the week of like CIM, like I was like working full time, had a crazy schedule at work. Um and so I went to CIM and I, I after I dropped out of that race I was honestly just like really, really burnt out for a while. Like I was just tired, burnt out. Um, I actually went into work and I was going to leave my job at that time, um, but they were able to work with me to give me a little bit of a flexible schedule um, so I could get my training in because training in the winter is really hard, especially you know when you're working a full-time job, full-time career. Um, it's dark you know, after work and it's icy and stuff, so it was really hard to get my workouts in, but... Um, they gave me a little bit of flexibility. So it was just trying to kind of like put everything, pull myself back together enough to be able to run um, the time. So I don't say, I don't think like physically I felt fatigued. It was more just mentally. I was like kind of tired. Got it. So let's dive into a little bit of your history here, because as anyone who's you know achieved marathon success at the highest level knows, and as you're very well aware of, is that you really need kind of years of high of high mileage kind of in a way to really achieve your best in the marathon. And that's something that unfortunately you really haven't been able to do because of just crazy, crazy <laughs> life situations that you've experienced. So it really is like kind of this untapped potential, but I just want to bring it like all the way back. If you don't mind, like when you were at Ohio state, you were a walk on runner there mm-hmm. and you know, you were, you were working hard. And then all of a sudden, you had, you know, I'm, I'm sure at the time it was a pretty scary thing. You had, you know, it's a, a uh, discovery about what was going on with your body. Yeah. So I um, was a walk-on for Ohio State um, and I ran three years. And at the end of my junior year of cross country, I decided, like, I was just totally burnt out. I actually had a stress fracture. I was just kind of like out of it, you know, not loving running anymore. And one thing led to another, and eventually um, we found out um, that I had was had a brain tumor, um, and I was diagnosed with a brain tumor um, during my senior year then at Ohio State. And uh, at the time, it was something where it was um, it was small enough, and it wasn't I didn't have like a ton of side effects from it. I think people always ask me if I had side effects, and I probably like looking back on it, I can probably think of some things that might have been side effects. But you live your life, and you don't really realize anything is different. Like I never thought I had a brain tumor. Um, so, what were, so what made them even test for it? So yeah, so I was actually never getting my period normally, and it was just something. It's something that we always attributed just to running because a lot of females, you know, might not get their period normally, which isn't healthy. And so if anybody's going through that, you should definitely go to the doctor. But for me, um, what they ended up doing is they ended up doing um, a blood test to kind of test my different hormone levels. And they found that I had an elevated hormone level of this one hormone called uh, prolactin. And it's something I think that maybe pregnant women, and this is obviously I'm not a doctor. So this this is just me speaking of like what I can remember what they told me. Um, and what can also be attributed to that is if you have a small cyst by your pituitary gland, so they, in in your brain, so they did a, um, they decided to do MRI to just scan to see, 
if I had a cyst by my pituitary gland. And so when they did that MRI, um, they found that cyst and then they also found a tumor um, in my ventricle. So it was kind of honestly just by luck that they ended up finding that tumor because um, I still have that small little cyst today. Um, but the tumor is something that they were more worried about. So they um, just kind of decided to track it for a couple years. Um, they did a they did a spinal tap. So I don't know if people know what that is, but it's um, they basically like kind of like stick a needle into your spine to get some of the spinal fluid, um, just with the feeling that if it was um, cancerous, the the tumor would have been like shedding cells and they would have been able to pick up those cells in the spinal fluid. And so after that test, they, they couldn't say for sure because they had to get a sample, but they knew they were reasonably sure that it wasn't cancerous, which obviously was a huge relief um, for me, but um, it ultimately continued to grow over time. Um, And then in January of 2015, it was finally time that they decided that they needed to remove it just because the rate it was growing, it was multiplying faster and they just didn't want it to start to press on other pieces of my brain and maybe cause some other issues. This is a crazy story. So (laughs) when you first found out like, Hey, you have a brain tumor again, I think like I can imagine the rest of the conversation is like the parents in like a Charlie Brown movie <laughs> where it's just like, wow, 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 wow. Yeah. I mean, like, you don't even hear anything else. It's just like brain tumor. Like what? Like that must've just been a crazy situation. Like, what was, what were the emotions around? And I, you do talk about it now in a very clinical manner. You've had a lot of time to, to digest, you know, what had happened and, and so on and so forth. But in, in those moments, how did you react to it? How did your family react to it? Yeah. So you know, I think in the beginning, because it was honestly, it was like my gynecologist t- telling me that I have this brain tumor. So I like, she's like, oh, you should probably go find like a, a um, neurologist, you know. And so I think at the time, um, it was just like, no, like that's, this isn't real. <laughs> like, you know, and I just kind of was going through um, the, the steps of getting everything checked out. I don't think it really hit me until... Um, I learned that I actually had to get it out. Like, I still remember at the time I was working full time at Abercrombie and Fitch's corporate office, home office here in Columbus. And I remember just getting a call and them telling me how it continued was growing and that they thought that I had to get it removed. And I think that's when it finally hit me um, that, like, you know, it's it's no longer something that I like just can live with. It's something that I actually have to do something about. Right. And then just, ha- and just having it in that location, too, is tough. I mean, pituitary gland, I know some of the, the tallest people in the history of the world have had that issue where they've had tumors pressing on the pituitary gland. And basically, they just never stopped growing. Yeah. So, and I, you know, so I actually have so the, the one by the pituitary gland is just a little cyst. So that one I still have. The tumor is was in my um, ventricle. It was in my right ventricle, which is like in the middle of your brain. It's like kind of like, so, um, I don't know. It's like the fluid filled space in your brain. There's like one on both sides. You have two ventricles on your left side and your right side. And so mine was, it was called like intraventricular neurocytoma. So what I had. Okay. So they, they, when they decide that they need to go in and mm-hmm. remove it, you know, that's obviously you're, you're still excited that if it's not cancerous, that's like the best case scenario here. But then like you're having brain surgery. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is intense. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely scary. Um, I mean, you have to sign kind of like a waiver about everything that can go wrong, you know, like, and I remember initially they were going to go down, um, they were going to cut open my skull like on the top and it was going to go through kind of everything that connected the left hand left side of my body to the right side of my body and so there was a lot of nervousness that like if something got cut the wrong way that I it could like lose connection from both talking between like my left side of my body to the right side of my body um so yeah I mean that was definitely pretty scary um I don't know I think I think it was a lot harder maybe for like my parents to go through it because I don't, I think I'm a pretty tough person and I just kind of was like dealing with it. Um, but I think it was harder for my parents. Like I think they were definitely really nervous about it. And 
um, you know, during the surgery, I think the surgery was like nine or 10 hours. Um, and my, my now husband was my uh, boyfriend at the time. They're the ones who have to sit there and wait, you know, I'm the one that's like, I was put under. So I don't really, I obviously don't remember it, but I think they had a lot of anxiety about it as well. Yeah. And what does the recovery look like for something like that? Yeah. So it was, it was a tough, a tough recovery. So I, I think I was in the ICU for a couple of days and then uh, I think I was probably in the hospital before I went home for about a week. I had a walker. Um, I had to learn to walk with a walker. And when I went home, I had a walker for a little bit. And then it was actually crazy. When I first went home, I ended up, um, there was one night I still remember, like, uh, I started losing the ability to like move the left hand side of my body. Like I remember I was trying to walk back from the bathroom and I just couldn't move my left foot the right way. And then ultimately what ended up happening is I lost like the whole left side of my body kind of was like, kind of got like paralysis. Um, and they had to take me to the ER and it was all due. Uh, there was some swelling in my brain. And so once they put me on anti swelling medicine to help that go down, I was fine. Um, but that was literally, I think that was the scariest thing I've never, it's going to sound, it's going to sound kind of silly, but like, I never realized your brain really controls everything in your body. And I never told, like, I never felt that feeling before until, like, I remember my mom was, like, trying to help me. And she was trying to help me, like, grab onto my walker. And she was like, well, just squeeze tighter. And I was like, I can't. Like, I literally couldn't squeeze or I couldn't loosen my hand. Like, I couldn't do anything with it. Um, And that's the only time, like, I truly understood how much your brain really controls um, but once they, I went to the yard ER that night and they put me on the, um, some medicine and it got this willing to go back down. And by the next day I was fine. And then I went back home. Um, and I was at the time, um, I was living in Columbus alone. And so I had a surgery at the Cleveland clinic, um, and I had to be out of work for like seven or eight weeks. So I actually stayed at home and lived with my parents for that time during recovery, just because I wasn't allowed to drive or do anything. Um, so I obviously needed somebody to take care of me. So my mom was my caretaker. Um, and I think, so I had a walker for a while. I, I, I had to do, um, I had like some physical therapy. Um, I even had to go through like occupational therapy, but I was able to pass that pretty quickly. I wasn't allowed to drive. Um, but I remember I was able to start like walking. I started walking on a treadmill, maybe like six weeks after. I wasn't allowed to like sweat at all, but I was allowed, it, I think it helped me just get, moving a little so bit. So why, why is that? Why were you, why weren't you allowed to sweat? I think it, I think because like they were afraid it could cause like swelling, um, and get my blood moving too much, which could cause um, issues in the brain. Oh, because yeah, because if you're sweating, that's because your core temperature is raised. Yeah. Okay. All I didn't right. ask too many questions. So I just said, okay. All right. So I, I cut you off. Okay. So you weren't allowed yeah. to sweat. So what were you uh, doing? So I just walked slowly, you know, on the treadmill and then eventually I went back to work. Um, I went back to Columbus. So the other thing that happened is uh, I remember when I was in the hospital, I kept telling the, all the nurses in there how uh, I was going to get a dog. So my mom got me a dog <laughs> during recovery, which obviously that kind of uh, helped with my recovery as well. Um, Cooper, who's my dog now. And um, then I went back to work about eight weeks later. And then I was at work for a while, a couple of weeks. And then I ended up getting like really horrible, horrible headaches. Like it was they were so bad that like I was waking up in the middle of the night, almost like puking blood. Like it was, they were so bad. And so they, my mom drove back down to Columbus and she took me to an ER here in Columbus. And um, ultimately they ended up having to transport me by ambulance from Columbus to Cleveland. And they had to do surgery that weekend. My surgeon came in on a Sunday night. Um, again, I had to, you know, sign off on paper, but I developed something called hydrocephalus, which is um, like water pressure on the brain. Um, and it's just because the fluid wasn't draining pro- properly from where the surgery was. Cause I had some like scar tissue build up. Um, and so they just had to relieve that pressure. And so then I had that second surgery at the end of April and then recovery from that, I think was not as intense because they, she followed the same path that she did the first time to get into the ventricle. So like my brain was already, had already been touched there. So it wasn't like the first time my brain never had been touched. So it was like a lot harder to recover. Um, but she just followed the same path line. So it was a little bit, a little bit easier, but I, I was still out of work, I think for a couple of weeks. Um, so, so how long after, how long did it take from the first surgery 
till the end of your second recovery? To start running again or to just... I guess, yeah, just to start to start living a life where you're like, okay, I'm kind of like, I'm without restrictions. Obviously, you're not going to like jump into like 90 mile weeks or anything. But you get to the point where like, okay, I can live my life how I choose at this point. Yeah, so I would say, I mean, I was able to start living by myself um, probably that like um, June. But I wasn't like, I didn't start like running like even 30 miles I don't like I think my first run were probably like that August um and they were like I was running like slowly slowly and just you know a couple like 30 miles a week or something just to be like healthy um but it it took a it took a while to get back and that even then like I wasn't super healthy you know but um but I at least was able to like go out and do stuff by myself now when you were coming back from this now two brain surgeries it sounds extremely dramatic yet you talk about it in a way that doesn't feel dramatic so did how did it feel to you coming back from it uh, and i say that in light of like did you have this you know increased urgency to get things done that you wanted to do or did you feel like you know worried that you know this could happen again like what, what was just your state of mind regarding the short term and long term in you know com- you know in relation to what you had just experienced um I mean, I think I just wanted to get healthy again. Uh, I think, like, uh, I just, like, wanted to start living, like, a normal life and just, you know, spend time with my um, boyfriend at the time and just um, just start feeling normal. Like, I had, I don't know, I just, I think I just wanted to work and hang out with my friends and go to the gym and do, like, the group fitness classes that I was doing at the time. Um, but, I, you know, I just wanted to be, like, a normal you know, everybody else was going out to the bars and having fun and going out to dinner. So I just wanted to do that with my friends post, post college, you know, I was still, you know, just a couple years out of college. So I just wanted to have fun. I wasn't really thinking like long-term at all. I just wanted to get back to a normal routine um, and enjoy life. So you, you felt like you were missing out. That, that was, that was the main thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, your life just goes by so fast, you know, Um, And so I felt like I just, there was a lot of things that I couldn't do a lot of time that went by. I just didn't feel like myself for a long time. So I just felt like, you know, I, you know, lost, lost some, some time and just wanted to enjoy hanging out and just being normal. Absolutely. And after, after this time where you, you know, say June, July, August, and you start to really kind of get back on your feet again and live your life kind of back on your terms and you start to experience the things that you've been missing out on. How quickly after that did you start to think about running in a, in a kind of a goal oriented way? So I think, so I ended up deciding that I wanted, uh, I'm just like a goal oriented person. So if I was going to run, I just needed to have some sort of goal. So my goal was to just run the Columbus half marathon because the Columbus half marathon was in October and it wasn't going to be like racing. it. It was just to like run it to just, finish a race I like to just finish it um and so I just figured I could run a half marathon um just I ran some miles but I never did I didn't do any workouts or anything for it um and so that was like my goal my goal was just to run the race and just to finish it and I did I think I ran like a 132 or something which for me was just like huge I just again I was happy to just run the race and just finish it and not have any health issues and just kind of be back and like a fun environment, um, and getting to partake in the local event. And then after that, like I, you know, I I wanted to keep continuing to train and stuff. And so I kept running and I was running that November. So that was in October. And then in November I was running and I was at that time I switched jobs and I was working at DSW's corporate office in Columbus. And I was running on a treadmill after work one day. And I, and I honestly, like, I don't remember anything. Um, but I guess I was running on a treadmill and I had a seizure and I fell off. And luckily there were a couple other girls in the gym with me. And so they called an ambulance, but, um, again, I don't, I don't remember anything until like I was in the ambulance. So I remember waking up in the ambulance and I was on the way to the hospital and I was super confused about what was going on. And, um, at the time my husband, or, I mean, he was still like my boyfriend at the time, but he was here now in Columbus. And so he 
you know, met me at the hospital and I had to stay overnight or whatever. And they had to start me on some seizure medicine. And I remember for the longest time I tried to prove to the doctors that I didn't have a seizure. I even tried to get like the, um, the, the tapes from the gym to see if I could like prove to them that I maybe just like passed out or something. But I know that the girls that were in there with me, they're like, no, like, we're pretty sure that you were seizing. Um, and so obviously that, you know, could be a side effect from some of the surgeries that I had. So um, after that, they had to put me on some anti-seizure medicine, which um, can have some pretty hard side effects. Um, it kind of messes, it, at least for me, it messed with my brain for a little bit, just kind of made me uh, probably a little depressed for a little bit until I got used to the medicine. So it was hard to kind of to get my body adjusted to this new medicine that I had to be on. And when you had that depressive period on that medication, was it mostly just mental and emotional or did it have physical symptoms as well stemming from that depression? I think, I mean, I think it like made me really tired um, and it kind of made me edgy. Like I think it was around the holidays and I, I even remember like I was at like Thanksgiving and I was like crying um, just, I don't, and I don't even know why I was crying. You know, it's just one of those things where I just, I don't, I couldn't help it. It was just some of the getting used to this high dosage of medicine that I was on at the time. Um, but I think like physically, I think the biggest piece of it was just made me like really tired all the time. Um, but it was once I got more used to the medicine, like I'm still, I'm, I'm still on it today. I'm just on a lower dosage. Um, so now I'm like used to the medicine. So it doesn't, I don't think I have the side effects. Um, as much, but it took a while to get adjusted to it. Now, how long will you be on? So, um, I don't know. I think it's something where I might have to be on a low dosage for a long time. Um, cause I think the fears that they take me off of it, that I could have another seizure. Um, so I don't know that answer. I obviously don't like to be on medicine. So I would like to not be on medicine. Um, if I can, if I can get off of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Then I can imagine that unknown of like, all right, we take you off. And then like, what happens then? You know, obviously you can go back on it, but you prefer not to be, you know, out in the run in the middle of nowhere and then have a seizure. And then, you know, you might not be in the safety of a, of a gym where people yeah, can check on Yeah, no, you. for sure. Or like, I know, like when I first started the, the um, first started the medicine, when I, after I first had the surgery, like I wasn't allowed to drive for a long time. So my husband actually, or he was my boyfriend at the time, had to drive me to work and he would drop me off and he'd pick me up after work because um, you could kill somebody, you know, like if you're driving and you have a seizure, you could kill somebody else. And so it's not only like my safety, it's also everybody else's safety around me. Yeah, man, absolutely. And, and, and this is such a remarkable thing because like, I know a lot of people, meaning me, <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I know how I would be feeling at this moment. Like, so you, at this point, you've had two brain surgeries, you've had a seizure. Did you ever just feel like, man, like, I just can't win here, like with this body, like, you know, I have running goals, I want to achieve certain things, but like, things just keep kind of getting in yeah, the way. Yeah, I mean, honestly, at the time, I think I was just really embarrassed, which might sound silly, but like, I don't know, like to have a seizure at work is I, I was just really embarrassed, I think, at the time. Um, and I, I wasn't really thinking that much about running competitively. I, you know, I figured I was ready, like a washed up college athlete that quit, you know. I, so I wasn't thinking about running competitively. It was just more that I just wanted to just be like fit. And I just felt like I wasn't fit or like feeling like myself. Um, so that was kind of frustrating. Mm-hmm. But I definitely was not. It was more just about like I just wanted to like be healthy, not necessarily like run competitively at all. See, I, I find it really interesting how you just phrased your college experience there because I've heard you on one of your on, on your friend's podcast. He started his own podcast a while ago, and I heard you talking about your college experience. And you talked about how, like, you know, for you leaving the team after your junior cross country season, you know, while it was a hard choice, that you felt like it was the right choice, that you had the right you had the right reasons for it, and that you know you went into it with a clear head. It wasn't some sort of emotional decision, like you know, like a couple bad races and then that's it. I'm out of here yet at the same time, is there a part of you that wonders or like that strives to find out like what you're capable of? Because obviously you didn't reach, you know, all your body could reach in, you know, in, in within your college. Yeah. Experience. I think that's why I'm like chasing it right now. Totally. Because, um, I definitely feel like in college, I didn't even tap close to my potential. Um, like my five K PR from college is, 
from like indoor track my freshman year. Um, and so that's why I feel like now I definitely like, I want to see how good I can really get. Cause I think I never even tapped into what I could have been. I mean, I, I will always say, and I a hundred percent believe this, that like, I think leaving running competitively in college was the right thing for me to do. And honestly, if I didn't leave and I didn't quit my, when I did, I don't know if I would be running competitively right now, just because I think I would have gotten burned out from it. Um, but I think, so obviously, so I left at the end of my junior year and I, um, I, I left because I just hated it. Like I just didn't love running anymore. And that's just not a healthy way to live your life. And I think if I, um, I think, I think it taught me a lesson and taught me how much I do love, love to run. Cause I think when I, once I left it, you know, I really missed it. I met, missed competing a lot. So I definitely learned a lot from it. Um, but as I had said before, like, I don't think I, I don't regret quitting, but I definitely do think I have potential that I never got to in college. See, that's a great point because it really highlights the fact that like you can make your decision and be like, Hey, this is the best decision for me. But that doesn't mean that every potential outcome that stems from that decision is going to end exactly. up perfect. Right. Because like, like you just mentioned, like, Hey, you still, you had untapped potential and here you are striving to reach it. And it just shows that like, that both things can both be true, that you can feel like you left something on the table, but also that you made the right yeah, decision. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, somebody's told me one time, like, life is just a bunch of, like, it's just a, a lot of different decisions. It doesn't, there's no right or wrong decision to anything that you do. It's just, you know, it's just the decision that you make at the time, and it can take you to X, Y, or Z, and you can still end up at the same place uh, and just take a different path, you know, but it's just what decision do you make at that time? Yeah, absolutely. And it, shoot, I think Roberta Groner is a Right. I mean, she spent she took 10 years off from running and now she has a 220 this now she has a 229 marathon PR at age 41. And has yeah, I know. She's in, she took 10 years <laughs> off. I know. She's incredible. Right. I mean, but it just shows that, like, you know, that there isn't this defined path that you have to follow. And if you don't follow it, like, you know, well, hey, good luck, man. You know, you're going to be on the outside looking in. Yeah. Well, I think that's one thing that's so cool about like, I mean, social media, you can say whatever you want about it. But like, I think it's, I think it is cool because it does highlight a lot of different people and a lot of different stories. Um, and you get to learn. And I think, I think that's why so many women are going for this OTQ right now. Because I think, I think it's kind of this common bond about like, you know, I went through X, Y, or Z, and now I have this chance and I don't, you know, I want to go for it. And it's everybody can go for it. You know, if it doesn't matter what you've come from before, we all kind of bond together through it and have different experiences, but we're all chasing after a similar goal. It's kind of cool. Right. And now this is like rapidly turning into like a healthcare podcast <laughs> in this conversation. But the fact of the matter is that like, Healthcare has been something that has like drastically affected your life, not only as a patient, but also as somebody who, you know, of someone who's a loved one going through something, because here you are having come through the two brain surgeries, going through seizure, you know, the, the seizure episode, you know, here we go again, like body's letting me down. And then shoot, like you come back from your honeymoon. Yeah. So, yeah. So exactly. I mean, I was feeling great. Running was starting to go well. I finally started to feel like myself again. And um, my, my husband, we got married in uh, August of 2017 and we go on our honeymoon and we have a great time. And um, I remember when he came back from our honeymoon, he kept complaining about some back pain. And I was like, you know, you should really get this checked out. Um, and so he went, I think he was, at, he went to the doctor before and they, you know, they didn't do a full, full exam. And so he went back to the doctor again, complaining about this back pain. And ultimately he had ended up being diagnosed with testicular cancer, which like, oh my God, talk about just like a punch to my gut. I think I was, I was like a lot more upset and a lot more worked out, up about, um, him being diagnosed with cancer than I ever was about any of my surgeries. Cause you know, it's a really scary diagnosis and, you know, you don't, you don't know what's going to happen with that, um, with that diagnosis. No, you most certainly do not. And, you know, you were really put in a situation where, like you just mentioned, that you were much more worried about him than you'd ever been for yourself. And that's so interesting, right? Because it's not as if you had like these procedures that were, you know, like, 
you know, having your wisdom teeth yeah. taken out, right? I mean, you went through some very serious stuff and it's interesting. All of a sudden you're on the other side here, taking a look at it. And how did, how did that work for you? Like you just mentioned you, this was a very emotional time for you going through this to say nothing of him who obviously was feeling whatever he was feeling. So how was it for you trying to, you know, manage your own emotions while trying to also be there for like, your, your your new husband you had this I, i'm sure this idealized version of what building yeah. your life would look like and it certainly didn't include this so how did you how did you fill this new role of caretaker that i'm sure you weren't exactly yeah i mean for? it was just like a really 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 hard time and so so that would have been like i think he got diagnosed in like september and then he, like it just happened everything just happened so fast um, I think he ended up having to have surgery, like to remove, like to remove the tumor in October. And then after the surgery, they did some tests and they found that it spread somewhere. So then he needed to have a second surgery. And then after the second surgery, they found that they, he still had some, like some of his blood counts are so high. So he had to start chemo. So then he started chemo in, um, January, and then actually, like when his first day of chemo, I remember I was sitting there with him and he was getting his chemo and he actually was allergic to like he started like his face started getting red and getting these splotches all over. He couldn't breathe. And so the doctor had to come in. They had to, like shoot him up with Benadryl because he was allergic to this drug, this chemo drug that they were giving him. And um, eventually they were able to figure out like the right uh the right level to drip it at and give him some other like drugs to take while he was giving his chemo drugs. But like, imagine that, like imagine the one drug that they're giving you to like save your life. You're allergic to like, that is like, that's not a good thing, you know? Um, but they were able to kind of medicate it enough where he was able to receive the, the drugs that he needs to receive. But like, I don't know. I mean, the hardest thing was watching him go through chemo. I don't, I wish that amongst nobody, like it is just, it is just awful. And his treatments, he had to go every day for two weeks straight. So I think, I mean, he, so we are lucky. Um, I, I remember the doctor told us if you want any kind of cancer, this, this is a the type of cancer you, that's okay to get because it's more uh, curable than a lot of the other cancers. So I would say that we're very, very lucky on that front. Um, but it was just, his chemo was pretty intense um, he had to go like every day and because the, the drip was so slow and with the chemo, he was there for, you know, six hours a day getting the drugs. And so he had to take some time off and on work. And for me, it was hard because I was still working full time at the time. So I couldn't be with him every single day while he was there. So that was hard. Like I was sitting at work trying to get my job, you know, do my job. And he was at the cancer hospital getting his chemo. And like, it was just, it was just awful. <laughs> um, but Luckily, he finished treatment um, in, I think, like, February. And at that time, I started running again, and I decided if I was going to run, I was actually going to, like, do it for real. You know, like, I was like, I'm not going to just run just to, like, to run. Like, if I'm going to run, I'm going to actually try my hardest because I want to make him proud, you know. And it was kind of running kind of turned into the thing that I could do to kind of go to grieve because it was the only way I could take care of myself because – my family's in Cleveland and his family's in uh, Cincinnati. So like I was the primary caregiver here in Columbus. And so it was just, it was just hard. So it was the only time that I had to myself where I was able to like take some time away and take care of myself um, in addition to take caring, take care of him. So that's when I started to really get back into running. And knowing what I know of you, I, I'm pretty sure this is also when you started really reconnecting with the Columbus running scene. Yeah. So it's when I like it's when I started to really, again, take running super uh, seriously. So I ran. Um, so that would have been like last year. So last like last um, last year, I decided to run Cap City and I ran Cap City half marathon and I um, won it in like a time of like 119. And then I decided to run Grandma's Marathon um, in Duluth, Minnesota in June. And that's when I ran a 246. And so at that time, when I ran that 246, that's kind of when everything kind of turned back around. And I said, hey, like the, the OTQ standard is 245. I'm only a minute off. You know, I I just started building back up my mileage at a at a more elevated rate. And I think I can really have a chance to get an OTQ. And so that's when I um, kind of took some time. And I know I know um, 
the man who owns like the local fleet feet store. So I kind of reached out to him if he had any help or could help me find like a coach or somebody to help train me. And so he set me up with my now coach and it's, we're kind of like a trio team. Uh, uh, my coach name's Rob and his name is Tim and we kind of all just work together. And, um, ever since last June or after last June, like June, July, um, we've been working together and it's just been a lot of fun. Man, I can imagine. And what was it? How much did you rely on just like your training partners and the running groups that you're in to kind of provide you with some of that emotional, mental support and just having people to be around and not have to, and not in that same, like, you know, when you're in caregiver mode, it's so easy to just get trapped in that cycle. How was important was it for you to just be around people who aren't worried about that sort of thing. They're just kind of like, they're just running and trying to succeed. And it's just like a different mentality and just a different point of view on life. Yeah. I mean, I just think having like having people to talk to, like um, I know like there were two girls that I really like trained with that winter uh, while Eric was going through chemo and the one girl, her, um, she was going through some stuff with like a fam- a member of her family. And so it was just nice to have like some people to just go out and just talk to and not, you know, they didn't care what I said or how I was feeling or whatever. Like, it didn't matter. Like, it was just like we were out there and we could say whatever we wanted to say and we could laugh about it. We could talk about how bad our day was or what we were going through and just um, or, you know, if we were having a good day, we could talk about that, too. It just all that stuff together was just it was just super helpful to have people um, such a supportive group of people to be around. It made a world of difference. All right. So after you hit 246. What was the what was the process like for you about setting goals and trying to figure out like how how much potential do I actually have here? Like, you know, am I just scratching the surface or am I pretty close to reaching? Yeah, so I, I think once I hit the 246, I was like, I was like, I'm only a minute off. So at that time, like my goal was just to like get the OTQ and that's um I think that was like my, the first goal, but I also know, like I've, I've done some like different tests, like VO2 max tests. And I just know that I um, have like some inherent, um, I think I'm blessed with some like natural ability just from the results I've gotten back from those tests, which I know those, they don't always like mean everything or anything. Um, but you know, they give me, they give you like different race predictors and what they think you can actually run. And um, so I just want, I just wanted to like, initially I just wanted to get that OTQ, but I think after I got that OTQ in, um, January, it, that's kind of really when I would say, like, I kind of turned around and said, okay, like now really like sky's the limit. Like I got that. I feel like I can, I feel like I have so much more left. I feel like even that race, I didn't run to my full potential. I think I have a lot left and, um, in me to run a lot faster. And so, I feel like that's kind of what this whole spring has been about. It's just like now just starting to believe in myself and believe that I can uh, get better and perform at a higher level and compete um, with some of the top girls in the country. So for, for 2019, how much of it is about, you know, preparing yourself for Atlanta versus just trying to be the fastest person you can be and figure out what races you want to compete in. So I think, um, I think this, this summer and like the early fall is all about just like getting myself lined up to run in some, some more bigger races and competing and kind of testing the limits and seeing how fast I can get. Like, I know I'm going to do like, uh, I'm going to do Peachtree 10 K. I might do one other 10 K I'm going to do, um, I want to do like the US 20K championships. I'm just doing some shorter races to just get more. Oh, ho, ho, coming to New England. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to do some shorter races to just get myself out there and uh, work on that speed and start to build up that a little bit more. And I think like, like I said, I would like to run a fall marathon and then really build up for Atlanta um, over the winter. I mean, when I look at myself, like I, I'm just being completely honest, like I don't, I don't see myself actually going to the Olympics, you know? So I think it's kind of all about how can I line myself up to get all these races in and get a lot faster and get myself uh, more experienced. So when I like toe the line, I feel like I'm actually prepared to race with, you know, the best in the country. Right. And you know, if your goal is to run low two thirties, say the two thirty two range in that area, which if you're running a one thirteen half, 
you know, that's, you know, 232 to 235 is, you know, well within your potential. Obviously, things have to break right. And, and obviously, there's a lot that goes into it. But anyway, with that being said, it's not, I think that's just the experience of going to Atlanta is a huge one, especially if you can go there and really run your best because, hey, man, you're still really young, right? I mean, you, you must be looking at like, hey, this, you know, if, if everything goes well, won't be my only Olympic trials. Yeah, I mean, so the way I kind of look at it is like, I would say that, like, you know, I really have only started training hard again, like, this past year. So when I think about, like, how much miles I have in my body, like, I don't, I don't really have that many because, you know, I I ran in high school, I didn't, but I was hurt my senior year. Then I ran in college and then I quit and then I didn't really run and then we had all these health issues. And so, so now I just think, like, I have even more potential if I could keep myself healthy and just keep building, you know, the how fast I was able to get in this past year. Um, I just think I have even more left. So it's almost like maybe what can happen after Atlanta or, you know, in the next four years when I have a little bit more time. Yeah, absolutely. Molly, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a fascinating and fun conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. It was fun. I hope, I hope we can connect sometime too. Yeah, absolutely. And Hey, for the, for the U S 20 K championship, I'm going to plan on being there. So I hopefully awesome. can see you then. Awesome. forward to it. Thank you. So I told you in the intro that you were going to love this episode. And was I right? I, I got to believe that I was. If you're listening to the outro and you lasted this long throughout the episode, I think that you got a taste of what I was talking about. Molly, my goodness. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you, Mercury Mile, for sponsoring the podcast. I cannot thank you more. Um, and also... Shoot, man, if you haven't checked out Mercury Mile yet, what in the world are you waiting for? I know you're buying running gear. We're all, all of us runners are buying running gear. And the best place to do it is at Mercury Mile. I say that because they have the best stuff and it's the most convenient. Those are two great things to put together. So check them out, mercurymile.com. Thank you so much for everybody for listening, for sharing, for rating, reviewing, and doing all of those things. Uh, thank you so much. I couldn't be more appreciative. So have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.